Uh, so we've been talking about our series is uh, One New Man and the subtitle, What It Means to Be the Body of Christ. So we're talking about uh, kind of rethinking how we think about church uh, from a more biblical perspective, I guess. Uh, and uh, I, I like to use the word organic. <laughs> I like to use the word organic as opposed to organ, organization, organism, not organization. Uh, but we really wanted to look at this from a biblical perspective and wanted to think about, well, what are the words the Bible uses to describe the nature of the church? And uh, one of those words is the word household or family. And so uh, today we're going to start... And next time, we're going to continue on the idea of thinking about the church as a family. Uh, And so we want to answer this question, or at least think about this question. What difference does it make, or should it make, that the Bible identifies the church as a family and not as a club? or a company. Because uh, I think for most of us, the church is kind of like a club in certain respects that we belong to, or uh, in some places and in some cultures, the church is really like a company. I think in American culture, we, we think of everything as a company, so the church gets included uh, uh, because it's all about business getting things done. But, sorry, I, I distracted myself. What, what difference should it make if we take the word family seriously? Uh, and what's the significance of the fact that we call God Father and Jesus Brother? Now, we also call Jesus Lord, but how... Why do, how can the Lord be our brother? And what difference does that make? Uh-huh. Yeah. And by the way, the king in Israel was not to be like the kings of the surrounding countries. He was supposed to be... Uh, well, in a certain respect, God's representative, but a brother king. Uh, But anyway, I'm, again, getting distracted. But I just wanted to look at some of these texts. 1 John chapter 3. I could probably quote this to you. It's like one of my favorite passages. You hear me say it a lot. It goes like this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. It's like, look at the amazing love God has given to us that we should be called children of God. The the apostle is just stopping and letting himself be amazed by that. We are called children of God. 
And he goes on, and such we are. We, he's, not, he's saying it's not just that we're called children of God, it's that we actually are children of God. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So here we're called children of God. Romans 8. And verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Not just Father, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So, uh, we've received a spirit of adoption as sons, in which we cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba, of course, is, uh, is like saying, Dad. It's a, it's a, it's an intimate expression of that relationship. It's informal. <laughs> it's daddy, papa. Uh, it's uh, yeah. It's that sort of uh, expression of the idea of, of fatherhood. Um, Galatians four basically says the same thing. It's. Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, a servant, uh, a doulas, an employee, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. <clears throat> John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right the authority to be called sons of God. I guess I don't need to turn to that one since I already know it. That's John 1.12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children or sons of God. 
Ephesians 1.5 In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And in this case, you is uh, Gentiles. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household or family. Uh, Verse 15 of chapter 3. I got to start with verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The church in the book of Ephesians is, there's several metaphors that, that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians for the church, and the family is one of the important ones. Uh, now, I'm just referring to these scriptures because they just sort of declare this reality that the church is a family and the family of God the Father uh, in whom uh, the Lord Jesus is the firstborn son, the only begotten, the son of God, the eternal son of God. And uh, we are adopted and can actually address Jesus as our brother and the Father as our Father. Uh, <clears throat> in Hebrews, there's a quote from the Psalms where, the, where Jesus, the eternal Son, is not ashamed to call us brother. And every time I read that, it just stuns me because I think, wow, he really ought to be kind of ashamed. And yet his sacrifice, his service to us actually imputes his righteousness to us so that he has nothing to actually be ashamed of. Like, that is a stunning thing. And so the eternal Son of God made flesh in the person, in the man Jesus, is our brother. In fact, the most common word to designate Christians in the Bible, the most common word, more than 200 times, this is the word the Bible uses when it means Christian or Christians. That word is brother. Brother or brothers. And, it, and most of the time, we should probably translate it brothers and sisters. You know, it means siblings. Uh, so <clears throat> it seems to me that we should work to adjust our thinking about our fellowship in the church so that we're thinking of it as a family. And we're relating to it and to each other in uh, something you could call a family relationship, a relationship of brotherhood. And we're not talking about the brotherhood of a club. 
you know, this isn't like your college fraternity brotherhood. This is like the real deal. Like we've actually been adopted into this family, for real. I have a, a niece and a nephew, and my brother and his wife adopted them when they were, I think, seven and eight years old. They came from Russia. And so they came into my brother's family, and they became the brother and the sister of their older brothers. And they really did become their brother and sister. They really are my niece and nephew by adoption, but for real. Neither one of them could say much of anything in Russian today. Their whole identity changed as a consequence of that adoption. They're, they are part of our family. They're just as really a part of our family as I am. And uh, this is our relationship to the family of God. Uh, there's an eternal family of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we have been adopted into that family when we came to faith in Christ. So, this makes me think, well, we should think about what it means to be a good family and how maybe we could be a good family as the church. And that might be a more important or better way of thinking of our relationship than thinking of it as an organization that gets things done in the world. Because I'm guessing, no matter how good your family is that you came from, it probably wasn't mostly about getting things done in the world. Uh, so what is it about? How would you identify or define a successful family? Just want you to grind that gear for a minute. How would you identify a successful family? You probably have been a part of or know of Families where you go, wow, that is a good family. What makes them a good family? What is it about them? Yeah, a loving and caring home. And if I think about what makes a good family, I don't typically think of business success. Even in families where they operate a business together. I, have, I was in a family business for a while, and in my family, that was not really a very good thing to do. It made us uh, contentious instead of bringing us together. Though in some families, having that thing that we're all kind of sharing together, working on together, makes them more effective. In my family, it was like, uh, I got to get out of business with my mom, or you know, we're gonna, we've got troubles. Uh, so, yeah, a loving, caring home. How, what other ways would you see where you'd say, oh, that's a, that's a good family, that's a successful family? How do you see it? How would you see a loving, caring home? That's one way we could ask that question. 
all work together and with one court and all decisions. Uh huh. And the goal behind what the aim is. Okay. So there's unity. There's a unity of purpose or a unit there's there's unity around something. Yeah. There's um, also um, love and unity Right. And there's actually kind of a respect for those individual differences, right? Like, uh, I'm not the same as my brother. And, you know, we make fun of each other. Uh, and when we were much younger, we could literally fight with each other. I could be fighting with my brother, and if someone else started fighting with my brother, I would be fighting with that guy instead of my brother. In a heartbeat. I have one very vivid memory of sort of seeing out the window of my house some neighborhood kid pounding on my little brother. And it was like I was instantaneously transported across the street. I mean, it was, it was uh, immediate, deeply emotional reaction. Because that's my brother. I can mess with him, but you better not. <clears throat> it's interesting. There's a, there's a, Distinction and yet a unity. There's a, I've got his back kind of thing. Well, uh, people have actually studied this. <laughs> There's actually a lot of social science about what makes a good family and, and how families do it that do do it. And uh, what it has been discovered, and it really it's like, you needed to do a study to discover that. It's very, you know, when you hear it, it's like, well, of course. And it boils down to these things we've really already said, uh, but, you know, they kind of define it in ways that help us think about it. And so one of the, what they, they've come to discover and define as a strong family is a family that develops strong connections. It's about relationships. It's, it's, uh, and what's interesting is even in secular studies of this subject, the first thing they notice is strong families do this thing they call connecting up. They have a spiritual core. They have, in some studies, they'll call it a religious identity. And so families that have that exhibit greater strength than families that don't. So if you want to be a good family, you probably shouldn't be an atheist. Though even atheist families can have that some kind of spiritual core. And what we mean by that is some kind of uh, 
connection to a basis of truth that is transcendent, that uh, doesn't come from us, but is like part of reality. There's a spiritual reality we believe in, and it is the ground from which all our definitions of goodness come from that, uh, our definition of truth comes from that. We don't make it up. It's not our truth, it's the truth. Uh, and our definitions of beauty come from that. Uh, so I think of it like this, uh, successful families have a spiritual life at the core. They have authority grounded in truth, grounded in some kind of God. Now, I'm, being, I'm trying to be careful to say that if we're just measuring how good a family is, that's not necessarily Christian. But we're Christian, and we're talking about the church. So, to me, this just comes down to this. A successful Christian family has a relationship with God and is in the process of building up fellowship with the living God in Christ by the Spirit. And if you ask me, <clears throat> that's way more powerful than any other spiritual imagination, partly because it's not imaginary. So uh, we uh, are built up in our fellowship with God, we connect up. The other thing they've noticed is good families connect in. All that means is they have good relations within the family. That's like, well, duh. <laughs> okay. Uh, that they sometimes call use the word cohesion for this. So this is the what you were talking about, Frankie. The one for all and all for one. Uh, true unity in the family. Uh, it's an emotional attachment to each other. Uh, it's exhibited in when we're deciding how to spend our time, we want to spend it with the family. Hmm. Now remember, we're not just talking about the family here. I'm not just coaching everyone here about how to have a good family. We're also talking about the family of God in the fellowship of the church. Okay, so there's that sense of cohesion. Well, this is all the one another's of the Bible. So if we apply this in the Christian context, it's love one another as I have loved you. <laughs> okay, that's good. That makes sense. The third thing they notice is that good families also connect out. So in a good family, the father helps his son participate in the son's team, which is out because he's helping his son grow up in all relations. So this is love your neighbor. 
you know, we just read, this is like the standard order of the Christian life. Uh, Good families participate in the community, in the world. They're they're not just ingrown. They're cohesive and they're in the world. Hmm. So this is love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, love one another. I said those last two out of order. Love the Lord your God, love one another, love your neighbor. It's not rocket science. Ephesians 4 says this. Verse 16. Okay, I'm starting with verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If you ask the Bible... What's the primary measure of growth in the church? The answer is love. Love. It's about relation. It's about connection. Personal connection to each other. Well, to God, to each other, and to the world. It's a relational sort of thing. It's primarily a relational sort of thing. Now, obviously, this has all kinds of other impacts. If I think about families, some families are in business together and they they care about how much they get done and how how much they get paid for it. All of that can come along. Uh, There's all kinds of different kinds of families. I can think, you know, some families are really planned and organized. My sister-in-law is a planner organizer, and my brother, my, this, I'm talking about my older brother now, the other brother, uh, he's, he's, he's kind of a planner organizer too, he's an engineer by training, and uh, so their family is pretty organized, planned, they know when they're doing what, they have a schedule. Uh, other families are way more chaotic and yet not less successful. Some families are very spontaneous. Like dad comes home and says, hey, we're going to the beach. Nobody was planning on going to the beach. And nobody says, yeah, but we're not ready to go to the beach. I know my sister, and I hope she doesn't mind me talking about her, but when, when my extended family gathers, Here's something that happens. There aren't any plans. There's nobody has a plan. Uh, so, you know, we'd have some kind of family reunion at my parents' house, which is in Seattle. Every day we'd get up and say, so what are we going to do today? Because everyone's on vacation. This would drive my sister-in-law crazy. So she'd go start making some plans, you know, and we're all happy that somebody's happy to plan. That's good. But, you know, we're, we just didn't have that in our genetics or something. I don't know. 
It's funny because I think my father is much more of a planner than my mother. But anyway, uh, different kinds of families have different styles. And that's okay. So different churches might have different personalities and it'd be okay. Some churches might be planners and others might be more spontaneous. Hmm. Well, anyway, that's really next the lesson from next time. I want to continue talking about how do we, how do families do this up in and out connection thing? And I want to try to quickly go through some of these things. What the social scientists have discovered is that in, in this kind of family, the individuals in the family know who they are in relation to the family. They, they come to discover their position and place in the family. And sometimes this is around like tasking, you know, who's the provider, who's the hugger, who's the problem solver, how do we solve problems together? Uh, where's the leadership come from? Uh, and so, but the, the point here is family, successful families tend to develop clarity on individual roles in the family. But again, with a lot of variation. A lot of variation. So just because this person's a child and not a parent doesn't mean that this person won't exhibit leadership in the family from time to time, especially with his or her siblings. Uh, and uh, I think you hear this when you meet any family with multiple children. The parents will tell you, yeah, you know, from the day we were born, they were born, we knew that one was not like that one. And this grows. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the second thing here is uh, clear communication. It, successful families talk to each other. In fact, one of the ways they measure this is they've figured out that Successful families converse a lot. They talk a lot. <laughs> and, of course, conversation can, has a certain content. Well, you might ask, what do they talk about? Well, in, in uh, strong families, they talk openly. They share themselves. There's a certain transparency. They're, they're truly open with, with each other, and they're, they share emotionally. You know, they can tell each other how they feel. Uh, now, obviously, this is also a matter of individual personality, and there's a great deal of variation here, but okay. Uh, I think the parents would exhibit leadership in transparency for this to be effectively developed in a whole family. 
parents are willing to tell their children what's going on on the inside. Uh, now, obviously, I hope I don't really need to say this, that does necessitate some discretion, right? I mean, it's not like you just share everything all the time, but you're able to share what you should share. That's different. Uh, so, uh, there's clear communication. There's a lot of communication. We know what's going on with each other. I, I think also in the developmental stages of life, this goes through some variation as well, right? Uh, so when, uh, when the kid is 13 and a half, they might back out of the conversation a little. Don't worry, they'll be back if you're there. I'm sorry, I just shifted into advice to the family mode. But let's think about that with, with the church. We need to be engaged. We need to be honest. We need to be able to share. Wow, it is hard to develop the level of trust necessary for that, isn't it? Uh, so we need a clear affection. Successful families are emotionally demonstrative and encouraging. They are safe. This, to me, in, if we think about how the, we apply these things in the church, this is a huge, maybe the biggest issue. Is it safe? Is it safe? Can you come in here weeping and we won't think, what a weakling. I, I don't need to have anything to do with you. We'll, you. You can come here weeping and we will try to understand and help. You can come with whatever and we, we will try to understand and help. In other words, there's honesty and acceptance. And that is very challenging. That's not so challenging in your family. <laughs> like, nobody had to train me that I unconditionally accept my brothers. I just kind of did. But in the fellowship of the church, we're, we're, we've been all adopted into one big family now. Oh, so there's going to be some weirdness but this is the goal. How can we be uh, honest and gracious? This is the miraculous combination of the person of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. All right, so I'm, I'm not going to let you continue with your stupid nonsense, but... I'm not going to reject you over it either. That's a tricky path to walk, isn't it? But that's, that's where we need to be, to be the family of God. There's clear affection. You're my brother, period. 
And from time to time, your brothers are the most giant idiots in the world. Anyone here who has a brother already knows what I'm talking about. So we are just multiplying that problem by millions. But he's still my brother. No matter what. And if we can build up this attitude in the church, we will be going a long ways toward that cohesion, that relating to one another strength. And by the way, those three relational directions are in order. This love that we share comes from God. We reflect it to him, to each other, and to the world in that order. The world mostly gets it by seeing it among us. Jesus said, this is how the world will know you're my disciples. This is how the world will know you're my disciples. And then he did not say, by the way you love them. He said, because you love one another. <laughs> so that love one another is the precursor to love your neighbor. Well, anyway, uh, so there's a clear, clear roles, clear communication, clear affection. There's loving discipline. And I already said this. This is speaking the truth in love. This is, uh, you know, you're being foolish and I can tell you and still accept you and we can have the, hey brother, you need to shape up conversation and even exercise the discipline of the church uh, with unconditional acceptance. There's a loving discipline. There's tradition and flexibility. There's uh, every family has things that they do. <clears throat> Holiday traditions, vacation traditions, uh, weird game night traditions, father-daughter, father-daughter, daughter dates, blah, blah, blah. There's a million traditions. Every family has traditions. None of those traditions remain the same throughout the lifetime of that family. They all adjust over time. They're all flexible. And then there's, we've already talked about this, there's a unity and autonomy in the family. I am a part of my family. I am a Searle. But I also have my own life. And in really healthy families, there's a good balance. There's, a, there's an identity with the family and uh, an autonomy. We encourage ha everyone having their own lives. There's transparency and there's privacy. There's respect for the individual. So that's a big old long list. And 
because it's such a long list, uh, we have to save uh, some of the implications, especially in the life of the church, for next time, which is what we're going to do. And But you could already probably see some just thinking about this list. And, you know, mostly I'm sure as we're... I know as I'm studying this list, I'm thinking about my family. Where do I see that or where do I see that lacking? What, or were we a strong family and in what ways and how and all that? I'm sure as we're talking about this, you're having similar thoughts. But our goal here is to think about being a good family as International Bible Church. And to me, it's, it shouldn't be, but it is revolutionary to go, wait, the church is a family. <laughs> the church is a family. So how, how I am a part of the church is how am I a part of a family? And that is a bit of a paradigm shift in my understanding of the church. Now, and I'm telling you that, I've been a pastor for I, since I can't remember. I've been in the church my whole life. I've been trying to learn this stuff my whole life. And yet, at this moment in my life, I can think about this and go, oh, well, that changes things. That really changes things. And I think, personally, in a very, very happy way. <laughs> so that's where we're going next time. Uh, what are some of those ways that I've observed? And uh, you'll, I think you probably get some opportunity to share some observations too. Uh, feel free to use this stuff, you know, think about your family or relate to them. And uh, I think it's very helpful information in that scale. But also think, what if the church was a family? Pastor, yeah. Something to stay based on family, family, right? My opinion is we, uh, the idea of all Christians, I mean, every belief that comes to know the Jesus Christ is the person saved. We all face weaknesses within, within each other. We sincerely express them before the Lord. And as we, my opinion, as we come to that level of understanding, it's just based on maturity, how we develop as a Christian, mm -hmm. what we want to improve, what we know that we weaken. Mm. We share among each other and we discuss how we can overcome that. And it continues, it's a process that never dies. Of course, right. Yeah, right. So um, I believe as a Christian, um, we ought to be very open to express our weaknesses, that we can get that support, mm -hmm. the encouragement to, to overcome them. Because uh, we could be arrogant in a way, okay, I'm right. like this, you know, that's my character and that's it. You know? Right. So there's no yeah. There, in my opinion. Yeah, for me personally, I find the the challenging bit of this is is that is being willing to 
be open about what I need, it's really easy to be on the other side of that and be the guy meeting the need. You know, that's a position of strength. But to be the needy person is 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 harder. I I for me anyway. Uh, and yeah, that's what we mean by transparency is uh, we're moving in the direction of more intimate relationship, uh, which means more things are on the table. Uh, and that can, we can run into some serious difficulty in that, obviously. It's hard to risk. It requires a high level of trust. Uh, yeah, so we're not, um, just because we can see what it is doesn't make it easy. But yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about, that sort of thing. Any other questions or points of discussion? Bob? Uh, I am not crazy. How do you know you're not crazy? <laughs> you know, you're not crazy. Anyway, All right. I was sitting here thinking, uh, relating uh, our church to uh, an empty model pancake Interesting. Anyway, I think you're crazy, but okay. <laughs> on the side of it, there's a formula over here. I think there's two, at least two answers to that issue that I can think of. One is, well, maybe churches aren't supposed to be that big. That would be one answer. And uh, the second answer is more like, well, you need this family relationship in church. Church should be a family relationship and if that can only occur below a certain population, then a big church needs to be a big church made up of a bunch of little churches. And that is, in fact, what many big churches attempt to do. Like, they, they're always trying to figure out. But, and even in, this, even in our church, we want to have home fellowship groups and small groups because uh, we think that in a group of 
five or six or, or a dozen people, you're going to have a better shot at many of these things than you would, you know, with a group of a hundred people. In fact, a group of a hundred people is already, in many respects, you know, a, a, this isn't going to, I'm not going to feel the same closeness of brotherhood with everyone in that whole group. I mean, there's going to be some variation and some gathering and some, yeah. So, I, to me, that's a sensible answer is a larger group is a larger group that is made up of smaller groups. And you can see that wisdom just in the biblical structure of the church. There's only one church. I mean, I'm, I'm brothers with people I can't talk to because we don't speak the same language. Uh, and they're my brother, just like you are, except not like you are, because the, there's also the local structure of the church. So to me, this is like, it makes sense then that in a town the size of ours, there's not one church, there's a bunch of churches. Oh, except there's one church, but there's a bunch of churches because this family relationship needs that sort of structure it down a little bit. May I Yeah. Shortly after Pentecost, we read that the church in Jerusalem grew up to 5,000. Man. Yeah. At the same time, they came many times and we that we together, not the five thousand together, right? So they were. Yeah, they were meeting. The scripture says, "House to house." I think. Yeah. Especially in this time, uh, in, in the near future, the persecution will increase. There will be a survival of the church because mainstream, mainstream, widespread church, they they can. Uh, Hmm. Well, I think you've already seen this in places in the world, in you know, for centuries, where there was a great deal of persecution. Churches didn't cease to exist; they got stronger, and maybe because they met in smaller groups. I don't know. <laughs> Well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I, some for sure. By the way, Bob, um, uh, Transport Radio has a men's ministry that I, I work with uh, called Every Man a Warrior, and they recommend no more than seven men in a Bible study. And when you get to eight men, you subdivide into two groups of four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're they're limited to seven men. Yeah, and for certain levels of relationship, you know, obviously you can't have that level of relationship with everyone you know. I mean, just the time constraint alone, you know, but, and that's not even the most important constraint. So, yeah, there's there's got to be some, I don't know, uh, some uh, smallizing. <laughs> yeah, smaller smaller units. Yeah. Yeah. We what well, we call them home fellowship groups. Call them, but people call them all kinds of things. Whatever they know them as. Yeah. It's hard to hide in a small. 
Yeah. It's very, it's very gently freeing. That's correct. Well, and even in that group, I, my feeling is, I'll let you sit there as long as you want and say nothing. And I think over time, the rest of us are sharing. You're going to build up enough trust to open up because it's a good thing to do because it will help you and you can see that. And so it, it is a question of building up trust over time. This is not something that can happen in an instant uh, with a particular... And some people... <laughs> Some people are ready to tell you there everything there is to say about you in the as, the as soon as they meet you, and some people are way more reserved. And a good family lets them be who they are. And so we know when you when that guy speaks up, oh, we that that's going to be meaningful and we need to really pay attention because he's not inclined to do so. And we also know when that guy talks, uh, well, we've got to pay attention to know when he's saying something worth listening to. You know, there's, there's a lot of personality involved in a, in a family, right? And a good family lets that happen and figures out how to address each person and develops that group identity at the same time. It's a very, well, it's not an engineerable kind of thing. Is that a word, engineerable? <laughs> 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 All right, well, let me uh, pray for us and uh, we'll be done. Father, thanks for this chance to be together. I pray, that, Lord, that it will be profitable for us, for our families, for our church. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, work in us by the Spirit and by our encouragement of one another. And uh, we thank you for this opportunity to be together, which, uh, Lord, we've learned we should not take for granted. Uh, but we do thank you and uh, pray that you would go with us and uh, give us a good week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.